Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins from ESA's European Space Research and Technology Centre in the Netherlands. I'm Sue Nelson. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and my co-host on today's podcast is science writer, novelist and the Guardian's Across the Universe blogger, Stuart Clark. Yes, we're in um, the Erasmus Centre here at Eztec, and this is quite an extraordinary room because it's like it's it's like a part museum to human spaceflight. It's part training centre. There's a small Mars yard. There's a model of the Columbus module on the space station, and something that looks behind us like it might have been in space, judging by all the scoring on it. I love the fact that we're standing beneath an enormous parachute, which is the. Uh, that's the Huygens probe, isn't it? So, yes, that's the... Uh, or is it... My, I actually think it might be um, Schiaparelli model with the parachute, wouldn't it? Ah. It's got Mars, ExoMars at the back background there. Oh, that, that'll be the clue, Sue. Yes, <laughs> that'll be the clue. Although, no. theoretically speaking, it should be a little pieces on the floor. <laughs> should be, yes, should be a big crater under that. <laughs> anyway, this is where uh, journalists are gathered, aren't they, for this Bepi Colombo briefing. Yes, and this is just such a fascinating mission. The first thing that struck me was that they said this was the most challenging mission that ESA had ever undertaken. Now, I thought Rosetta was pretty challenging, and so as soon as I heard that, I was pretty sceptical. And then as the briefing went on earlier this morning, and we heard exactly what it takes to go to Mercury and to do science there, I am completely convinced that this is a really difficult mission. And this is the last chance, actually, that uh, journalists and some of the space scientists um, here will actually get to see it before it goes to French Guiana for the launch pad for next year. And um, you're, well, both of us are hoping to get into the clean room at some stage. Yes, so at the moment, the spacecraft is in its full stack configuration. So there's four separate parts to this spacecraft, and they're all stacked on top of one another, as they will be when they're launched. But as of tomorrow, they start to uh, take it all to pieces so that they can do the final tests on each of the individual modules so this is our last chance to see it before it goes out to the launch site altogether good we'll take some photos and um, particularly i want a selfie of you in a hairnet please if you, if you have to wear one <laughs> you've got longer hair than mine and um while Stuart will be grabbing some interviews with the mercury mission scientists i'll also be hearing from paul mcnamara he's a project scientist on the successful lisa pathfinder mission which is about to come to its official end and also i'll report from tate liverpool on a new exhibition about space by the aptly named artist alexandra mir what's important here is the size relationship so so pluto is enormous and earth is tiny and of course from pluto's point of view that's what 
Pluto would think. So it's a way of giving Pluto the dignity to decide for itself what size actually means. I'm standing here with Uli Reininghaus, who is the ESA project manager for Bepi Colombo. We're only a few metres away from the spacecraft, and it's towering above us about six metres in height. I think it's worth emphasising just how harsh the environment is at Mercury. I mean, you're going to be operating this spacecraft in hundreds of degrees centigrade. Yes, this is correct. We had a group of pupils some weeks here, and I tried to really to, to impress them. I set the temperature up to 450, no reaction. I said, we fly into a pizza oven and stay in a pizza oven <laughs> over years. This impressed, of course, and this is what we do. We are attracted by 10 solar concepts from the sun and at the same time from harsh infrared radiation from the planet. Mm -hmm. So when we go really through the, the planet and the sun, we lose contact to the Earth. This, of course, then autonomous operation on the, on the spacecraft. So data will be stored in solid-state mass memories and will be dumped with the high-gain antenna as soon as we have visibility to Earth again. So, and this is, of course, very, very challenging, having to survive over the time these conditions. And you will be surprised, the interior of the MPO, the units will work at 20, 23, 25 degrees. What do you think is, is your proudest achievement with this spacecraft? Oh, difficult to, to say, but where I was very happy really was that we solved the issues we had with the solar array, because this attracted us over years, and we had a number of various problems at the time where we always thought, what do we do now? Yeah, because we had no fallback position, we really thought engineering, this is engineering pride, I must say, where people were really looking behind and we, we wanted to test things and we wanted to prove, or we had to prove, that the analysis is right or wrong. And we had several analyses which were completely wrong, proven by test. Yeah, totally unexpected results, but now I have no I could say also the radiator is, is really a piece of master art to get this work because the, the thermal test of the, M, of the MPO failed at the first time because we were much too hot. So this is why we had to develop a completely new thermal concept and it worked. So we, we repeated the test and it worked. The multi-layer insulation is something you see only the silver shiny outer face. There's much more in between. There are titanium foils behind and there are Kapton foils, always respecting the temperature regime. The outer skin is, is, is a ceramic layer. You may not believe it, but this is glass covered with, with, P, with, with, with PTFE only to make it suitable. There are no machines which could sew this. So when we overlap this thing, we have to close the gaps by hand sewing. Yeah. So the operation to equip the, only the MPO module just with thermal insulation takes up to three weeks. Wow, that's amazing. So it's certainly a piece of engineering beauty and a masterpiece of a spacecraft. Absolutely. There are other projects, of course, who have also their challenges. I, I, before I entered with Bepi Colombo, I was on, on Herschel, where we worked with uh, uh, liquid helium at the lower end of, of the temperature. Mm. Yeah, very, very cold. Yeah. So you've gone both now from... from to extreme cold to extreme warm. To yes, extreme this, hot. This, this, well, this correct, I yes. wish you all the very best with this spacecraft. I think it's utterly amazing and I shall be following it with great, great interest. Glad to hear this. Thank you very much for your visit. Thank you. Now, in order to get into the hall where all the spacecraft and mock-ups and... Uh, 
wonderful flags showing the cooperation that goes into European missions actually are. I passed through a corridor which had some beautiful canvases on artwork, effectively, portraits of some of the European astronauts that work at the European Space Agency, Alexandra Gerst, Samantha Cristoforetti and Tim Peake. And in fact, they are so nice. I took a picture of them, so I will put those up and check them out on the Facebook page and on Twitter because they are lovely and I'm quite pleased I saw some artwork because our next piece is all about the combination of art and space. Artist Alexandra Mir has a history of interesting work with a space theme. In 1999 for example her community piece of art First Woman on the Moon turned a section of public beach here in the Netherlands into a lunar landscape. And since then, it's continued to be recreated in different countries all over the world. Her latest exhibition, Space Tapestry, involved her working closely with those in the space industry and has just opened simultaneously in Liverpool and Oxford. So I joined her for a private preview of one of them at Tate Liverpool. Let's push open the door. Well, the first thing to notice as you walk into the room is that it's all black and white and that there are images, yes we are alone, a very bold statement there in the universe, one which I think a lot of our listeners will hope is not true. Mm. Um, (laughs) And then you've got these massive canvases with planets on, with buildings and questions. How far from Hackney is Jupiter? And then in the centre here, let's just walk along here because it's incredibly long. It looks about 20 metres long, a couple of metres wide. A low black and white checkboard, almost like a massive long banqueting table. In different segments, I mean, I suppose the title of the exhibition, Tapestry, because it does look as if it's in cross-stitch of different spacecraft and for people like me this is wonderful because Mm -hmm. for a start you start to think which ones can I identify that's Gaia because that's a very distinctive sombrero hat formation I think one with four solar panels coming out is Samos I hope I'm right there soil moisture am I wrong well this is interesting because this whole exhibition this whole project intersects art with science or technology if you will and It's been brought about with resources, my research in the science world, into technology and industry world, so lots of people have informed it, we're actually actively working on space, but also we hope that it will draw in a public that will come from that that world of interest. And to be really honest with you, I personally am completely ignorant about most of those aspects myself, so when I've approached drawing spacecraft, I approached them from a purely design and aesthetic level, what I was intrigued by I was looking at the volume of spacecraft, creating a kind of inventory of all the craft that we have sent out, um, and looking at the, the, the startling range of designs and shapes and forms, which is kind of my domain, the aesthetics, and trying to depict those and make those tangible to my world, which is the art world. So... I won't even be able to tell you exactly which spacecraft is which, but but the thing thing is, the thing is, you will. So this is a case where the public might actually outsmart the artist, and it's this sort of game and kind of play interplay between us that makes this 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 powerful. Because as of last night, I've handed this work over to you. It's no longer mine the way I see it. Once you release 
an artwork in public, it actually belongs to the public. And anything the public will say about it, do with it, think about it, is the truth. Most importantly, all of this is handmade. And it's not handmade by me, but me together with 25 young other artists and people who all bring a personality, a dynamic, an energy, an opinion to the table. And that's why it's so rich. It's lovely. And you're right. Let's just walk along here yeah. because... It, it does make you want to guess if you're somebody like me who, who recognise, I, I mean, I, rec- I suspect a lot of people will recognise this particular spacecraft in front of us now, which mm-hmm. is Sputnik, yeah. because it's so distinctive. Other ones, you just think, oh, I know that. Is that Rosetta or is it Mars Express? Because yeah. let's face it, because for some spacecraft, they yeah. are very similar because yeah. they're boxes with, with solar yeah. panels attached yeah. to them whereas other ones are more distinctive mm. and as you say from an artist and design point of view mm. more interesting. Definitely and actually all of this also originates with conversations and interviews I've done with professionals in the space industry who have educated me and who've, who've taken me on different paths of philosophical thought and sort of dropped me off and said deal with this and this whole kind of survey in a way came out of a conversation I had with Matthew Stuttered at Airbus and he told me about the cultural variation in spacecraft design you know they design satellites and he talked about the technology and the extremely rigorous requirements that go into designing spacecraft functional function the functionality of it but then he also talked about but, you know, Russian and American and others will have different cultural sensibilities. Yes, and, and I bring, can recognise Russian yeah. spacecraft here too, yeah. And that's so you can bring a sort of an anthropological reading into this as well. I mean, there's a lot in here for everyone. Before we finish, let's just walk along to the other end of the gallery mm-hmm. to my favourite with different planets, different images, all construed through an artistic lens. And from here... It says, you look so small. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is sort of a gift in a way, because this was uh, very much inspired by the Horizon, New Horizon flyby of Pluto two years ago, 2015. And this was my first time in Liverpool, and I was actually invited as the only artist speaker at the UK Space Conference here. So that coincided with the sort of extraordinary revelation of these wonderful images that were coming back from Pluto, and and the sort of excitement in the community about, you know, that it's a scientific wonderland that, that these images revealed, and this big beating heart in the middle of it, which wasn't lost on any Instagram teenager, right? And I was fascinated to watch that debate, initially just this amazing romantic response to the discovery of Pluto, how beautiful and gorgeous she is, right? This virgin bride that we've just discovered properly for the first time has grown up in, in, in front of our eyes. And then now we want to re- kind of reestablish a novel relationship to it. It was like a debutante ball for this planet, right? So now the society is embracing this new member of, of its society. And, of course, these are all our projections on this. This object has been sitting there for zillions of years, geological, dead object, but it's suddenly imbued with so much emotion and feeling to the extent that this whole raging debate that followed whether we should, you know, recategorized it back to, to status of planet was, again, fascinating. I mean, that the drama in that is worthy of an opera alone. So my drawing 
inverts the relationship in size where Pluto is actually the biggest. And, and that's the one with the heart that's on it, the your biggest, beating heart. <laughs> your beating heart. And, you know, it's the, it's the classic lineup of planets that every, every school has, you know, to teach students about the relationship with planets in a simplified way. So mine is even more cartoonish and crude, but what's important here is the size relationship. So, so Pluto is enormous and Earth is tiny. And, of course, from Pluto's point of view, that's what... Pluto would think. So it's a way of giving Pluto the dignity to decide for itself what size actually means. But it's also using one of the oldest tricks in the book that artists have been using since the Renaissance, which is to play with perspective. You know, working on a two-dimensional surface depicting three dimensions, there's a toolbox of tricks, which actually during the Renaissance were trade secrets, you know, the, cre- the creation of illusion- the illusionary space. And so in a way, I'm using one of the, the, most, the oldest tricks in the book to manifest size difference and sort of create a false perspective, if you will. Alexandra Mir, whose space tapestry exhibitions are at Tate Liverpool until October and Modern Art Oxford until November. Her book, including interviews with space scientists and engineers, is called We Can't Stop Thinking About the Future. It's published by Strange Attractor Press and it's got MIT worldwide distribution. And you'll recognise quite a few of our podcast guests in there, from the Director General of the European Space Agency to Sanjeev Gupta at Imperial College London and the Open University astrochemist Helen Fraser. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're at ESA's European Space Research and Technology Centre in the Netherlands and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and we'll put some pictures up of today's recording on our new Instagram page too. I'm standing in the clean room here at Eztec, and standing next to me is Johannes Benkov, the project scientist at ESA responsible for this mission. Now, this is such a difficult mission to achieve that it's taken quite a long time to get everything in place. Was there any point at that, on that journey where you thought this was perhaps too difficult? Maybe not too difficult, but at one time, even before Messenger arrived at Mercury, there was a question very often asked, do we really need Pepe Colombo? And there was a little bit of fear that people might decide uh, to cancel this project. But from the technical point of view, I was convinced that we overcome the problems. Now, the messenger mission was the NASA mission to Mercury. It hasn't given us all the answers for Mercury by any means, has it? No, that's uh, completely correct. The contrary is the case. Messenger brought us many new aspects, new questions, which we now can follow on with Pepe Colombo. And before the Messenger mission arrived, many people thought that Mercury is maybe a boring planet like the Moon. But for Messenger, we learned that this is a very fantastic planet with features we have not expected before. There's a lot of volcanism in the north, huge areas of, of, of volcanism. There's ice in the craters. This magnetic field is shifted. There are features like hollows where we don't know what it really is, but it, it goes in the direction that it's maybe something which... Uh, indicate recent activity on that planet. At the moment, we don't know what the composition is. But uh, if you look at these features, people compared with Swiss cheese or so, they, they have a structure where we could imagine that there may be some gaseous material was going out and, and leaving the structure as it is. So it indicates a little bit that there, there is a kind of activity, uh, either from material which comes from 
the deeper crust uh, to, to the surface. Or it, it's not clear at the moment, and, and that makes it so, so fantastic in a way. Yeah. Yes. Now, Mercury itself, it's not just about understanding the planet. It's about using Mercury to understand the origin of the solar system as well, I believe. Mercury is, in a way, a missing piece in our big picture of how the solar f- system is formed. If you want to really understand what's going on, you need to, to look at all the pieces. And with ESA, we have missions to the comets, which are other kind of end members, if you want to say that, uh, of this big picture, because the comets are born far out uh, from, from the sun, while Mercury is the planet closest to the sun. So in order to understand the complete picture, it's essential to understand Mercury. One of the other fascinating things that I find about this mission is the accelerometer that's on it and the relativity experiments that you're going to do, because I find the sensitivity of this just mind-blowing. We have a radio science experiment, and radio science, what you normally do is that from ground you measure the position of your spacecraft. And in order to reduce the errors of these measurements, we have the two frequency up and downing in Ka and X-band. And the position of our spacecraft is influenced by the planet itself, and that is how we learn how the inner structure of the planet is made of. But it's also influenced uh, by, by the sun and, and by uh, the orbit itself. And what we would like to do is to have a very precise measurement of Mercury's orbit around the sun. Because there are parts in Mercury's orbit uh, which cannot be explained by Newton mechanics, you need to introduce Einstein's theory of general relativity, and then it's explainable. And in order to achieve the accuracy that we even do measurement of a relativistic effect, we have, in addition to our radio science instrument, also an accelerometer in the center of the spacecraft. And this accelerometer uh, measures the noise which are introduced by movements on the spacecraft of the antennas, for example, or of the sonar panels, but also the interaction with the solar wind. If there are particles coming from the solar wind and hitting the spacecraft, these little hits are recorded by the accelerometer. And then if we correct our radio science mission by the readings of the accelerometer, we achieve accuracies which are 100 times better than what we have so far. Wow, so this will be a test of Einstein's general relativity to an accuracy about 100 times greater than we can achieve at the moment. That's correct, yes. See, that in itself, even above and beyond all the um, Mercury science, is just amazing. What a fantastic mission. Johannes, I shall be watching keenly when the rocket goes off. Thank you very much. Although Stuart and I are here at the European Space Agency's ESTEC site in the Netherlands for the Bepi Colombo briefing, plenty of other missions go through this technical facility before launch. One of those, Lisa Pathfinder, recently became the first spacecraft to take a step towards detecting space-based gravitational waves. It was a demonstration mission. And these gravitational waves were first predicted by Einstein 100 years ago. The success has led to the go-ahead for the follow-up LISA mission. And LISA Pathfinder officially ends in the middle of July, July the 18th. Well, I'm joined by Dr. Paul McNamara, the LISA Pathfinder project scientist who's based here at ESTEC. Paul, a huge success for you. But take us through where these gravitational waves came from in the first place, because it's sort of mind-blowing, really. 
So gravitational waves have been around really since the Big Bang. And so we have primordial gravitational waves produced a tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang, and they've been travelling through the universe ever since. Now that's one form of gravitational wave. However, if anything is moving, anything is accelerating in the universe, they create gravitational waves. So, you know, things like waving your hands, you create gravitational waves. But they're extremely low amplitude. So if you actually want to get something where we can measure it, we'd really have to look at the big objects of the universe. Uh, And for, you may have heard of the LIGO detection recently, the first ever detection of a gravitational wave, it was created by two black holes spiralling in towards each other and eventually merging into a single black hole. And these were two objects about 30 times the mass of the sun. Uh, The spiralling, just before the merge, they were travelling at about 60% the speed of light, which is quite phenomenal when you think of something as massive travelling at that velocity. But they merged and they created these ripples throughout space-time and LIGO detected them. So with LISA, we're actually looking at much bigger events. So rather than looking at things roughly the size of the sun, one to a hundred times the mass of the sun, we're looking at things which are millions of times the mass of the sun. So the the centres of galaxies where you have these supermassive black holes and you see these beautiful pictures from Hubble of galaxies merging. So we believe that these black holes will eventually merge. Like LIGO, they'll start to spiral in towards each other and form one object. And when that happens, they just create these massive amounts of gravitational waves. So the universe just starts to ripple all the way out. And with an object or an instrument like LISA, we can detect these ripples. That's a great thing, isn't it? Because these ripples have always been there. It's just this is the first time we've got the technology to actually see them. And by virtue of that, you'll be seeing the universe in different ways as well. Yes, this is a whole new way of observing the universe. Up until now, we've always used electromagnetic light, maybe with some particles like neutrinos or cosmic rays. Now there's a whole new window which has been opened. And within the first few months of making the first measurement, there's a whole bunch of theories out there of why the universe is the way it is. So it is wonderful to be the very first step of a whole new branch of science. How do you feel about... Lisa then because you know you've spent a large part of your life working on the technology demonstrator and then waiting and hoping it's going to work which it did spectacularly well um, and, and now effectively you've got to start all over again haven't you? It's such an exciting time uh, I started actually you said a large fraction of my life it's actually more than half of my life I've been now 23 years I've been working on uh, Lisa and Lisa Pathfinder and we at the, the very start we were designing Lisa uh, and then that's taken lots of time. Then went off and we did Lisa Pathfinder. So we've been through the, all the stages, all the sometimes the the pain of things not quite working, through to the, the ecstasy of it all just coming together and launching and seeing this thing operate. Uh, and so I know what's coming. I know that it's it's a great fun at the moment because we're out designing a whole new mission, and that's just such a cool thing to do to be you know in a room with a bunch of scientists and we're saying how should we do this, how should we do that. It's just, it's very nice. I know there's going to be a lot of pain over the next few years because we have to build it and things don't always go according to plan. But then I know that when we get to the launch pad and we launch it and it starts operating, it's been all worth it. And you said build it, but actually Lisa, unlike Lisa Pathfinder, will be three spacecraft. Describe the configuration because I find it quite hard (laughs) to sort of believe myself that something that far apart will be so precise because that's that's an incredible feat that you're going to have to do so i always call that one thing we're building it because there are three satellites and the three satellites are separated by two and a half million kilometers so about six times the distance to the moon but they form one single instrument and so there's not three separate instruments on each satellite it's only when all three satellites are communicating with each other through laser light then we have the gravitational wave detector 
Uh, so it is quite phenomenal to think of the numbers. So we have to be able to measure the separation of the satellites. Actually, we do one arm with respect to another arm between them. And we have to be able to measure that to the order of a tenth the size of an atom. So about 10 picometers. And if you take that over the length of the arm, millions of kilometres, that's equivalent of measuring the distance to the nearest star, something like Proxima Centauri, to about the width of a human hair. So it's a phenomenal measurement. But then again, if you look at the, the LIGO detectors, they were much smaller. They were four kilometres, but they have to measure things to a hundredth or a thousandth the size of an electron, you know, maybe a hundred thousandth the size of an atomic nucleus. So what we are doing is actually much easier in terms of the displacement measurement, but we're doing it over a very long distance. It, uh, it is incredible, and um, I, I, it is it's mind, it is mind-blowing, really, isn't it? I mean, I shouldn't say that to you. Of course, you, you take it for granted, I, I assume, but actually you sound so enthusiastic that you still... Can't quite believe it. I, I can't quite believe it. And people say to me, what is a picometer? Because we measure picometers every day. And at least a pathfinder, we measure femtometers, a thousandth the size of a picometer. And I don't know. I know it's a small number. I know relative to other numbers, if it's big or small. But it's very hard for anyone to comprehend the tiny distance measurements we're making over the vast size of the antenna. And then if you compare that, to we're making measurements which are say, subatomic distance measurements. And we're trying to measure something which one single gravitational wave event outshines the entire electromagnetic universe by about a factor of between 50 and 100. So this is one event which is brighter than the universe, and we need the most sensitive instrument ever built to even have the slightest chance to measure it. And, and it is phenomenal. And, and Einstein conceived this 100 years. I mean, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? It's absolutely incredible. It was, you know... the. Gravitational waves came a few years after general relativity. It was a solution of general relativity. And after even about 50 years after Einstein, people still didn't know if it was just a mathematical artefact, if they were real. If they were real, they would never be detectable. And then there was a man called Joe Weber who really kicked off. He believed that these were measurable physical uh, waves. And he built what we call bar detectors, a big bell essentially, uh, a big lump of aluminium. And as the gravitational wave passes, it rings. And that kicked off the field about 50-something years ago. And we've been searching for all that time, looking for these. And it was just in September 2015 we made the first ever measurement. So almost exactly 100 years after general relativity was first published, we made the first measurement of a gravitational wave. Dr Paul McNamara, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who took part in today's programme from ESA's European Space Research and Technology Centre in the Netherlands. How have you enjoyed today? Oh, it's been absolutely fantastic, Sue. I mean, it never gets old, space exploration for me. I just find it so phenomenally exciting. And the ambition to go to Mercury and to do these amazing things in this harsh, harsh environment. Yeah, love it, totally. I also love the fact that it does feel like we're in a combination of a... uh, a scientific facility and a playground, a science museum, a space museum, effectively. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. Every time I come here to Aztec, I do. I feel like I'm on some kind of adventure holiday. It's, uh, yeah, it's not. It doesn't feel like work at all. And that's a perfect link to the fact that Aztec has an open day on October the seventh, and it's well worth coming to. So. If you're listening and you want to come and see this for yourself, you can do so. You can see where space science missions are conceived, where they're built, uh, as well as there's always usually some astronauts around on that open day as well uh, who work on the space station. So uh, do try and come. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. 
You can find details about it on the ESA website and via at Space Boffins on Twitter and the Space Boffins Facebook and Instagram pages. Thank you very much for listening.